Hi friends, thanks for joining us again. Well, that was a great reading by Joanna. So let's see what we can do with the text that we're looking at today. It's a text, a text that many of you likely, you're reading it, you're hearing it, and you're thinking, I don't like it. So what do you do when you're reading the Bible and you come across passages, stories, texts like this that you don't like? You don't know what to do with them. They're confusing or you don't understand them or you just don't like what it says and you wish it wasn't in there. Let me give you some other examples to just help you see that there are spots in Scripture that you'll struggle reading. In Genesis 19, we're told that God destroyed two cities and all the people in them, Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you do with that? 1 Samuel 15, uh, we read that, that God instructed King Saul to go to the Amalekite people and completely wipe them out. And God says, destroy them all, men, women, children, animals, leave nothing alive. What do you do with that? And sometimes we'll say, well, you know, let's, we just have to read it in the lens of Jesus. And yes, that is true. But, but even Jesus says things that we sometimes struggle with. And we need to be willing to admit that. So in Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you don't forgive anybody, or if you don't forgive people that have wronged you, God won't forgive you. What do you do with a verse like that? Or in Matthew 7, Jesus says, you know, the gate to the kingdom of heaven is narrow and the road there is difficult and only a few people find it. Hmm. How about Mark 10? Anyone who divorces their husband or their wife and marries another person commits adultery. Ouch. And of course, there's passages like today, Colossians 18. 318 to 4 1. And of course, there's, uh, there's some other passages very similar to this in Ephesians chapter 5 and into Ephesians 6, and in 1 Peter at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, which are saying very similar things as these. And I would encourage you to read them. In the, in the, it's in the notes, the, the references for you to look up. But what do you do when you have a difficult passage like this? And, and I think it begs the question, how do you read the Bible? When you approach the Bible, what is the attitude that you bring with it? Maybe for some of you it's suspicion. Or you're, you're just, you don't feel like it's trustworthy, and so you're very suspicious of reading, or you're looking for things like this to make a point. For some of you, it's just downright confusing. I don't know what to do with stuff like this, and I don't like it. For others, maybe it's just apathy. Yeah. You know, the stuff in here, whatever, when I get around to reading it, I read it, but, you know, it doesn't do much for me. And for others, maybe there's a sense of anticipation. But let's be honest and just acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes when we're reading, it's difficult, and, it, and it's, the stories can sometimes be disturbing. And I want to read a quote for you from a friend of mine, Megan Good. She's written a book called The Bible Unwrapped. And I would, I would highly recommend this book. It's by Harold Press. And this is what she writes in reference to some of these challenging parts of the Bible. She writes this, The Bible story isn't neat because this kind of pursuit never is. It's messy and it's confusing and frequently uncomfortable. But it's precisely the blood and sweat and tears and questions that certify the Bible's trustworthiness. This is the story of real life, raw, uncomplicated, 
and sacred, raw and complicated and sacred. By immersing ourselves in Scripture's messy stories and by daring to call them God-breathed and holy, we are reminded that if God can be here, God can be anywhere, even with broken people like us, even in our cracked and jagged world, even in our up and down, back and forth, missing and reaching stories. And I so appreciate what Megan has to say there. And there are times when you will read a passage like this and it will make you uncomfortable and it will leave you with questions and it will even maybe leave a bad taste in your mouth. And my encouragement today is don't just drop it, but consider doing the extra work that might be needed to understand. After all, this is a document that is from a very different culture, from a very different time. And yet, it still has much to say for us today. That is what God does. He takes these writings that were given at one point to a particular people, and then the Spirit of God continues to speak into our lives, even in sometimes the challenging passages like this. And in a passage like this, we have to honestly say it is difficult, and we're not entirely sure exactly what Paul was doing in creating these household codes. And scholars and people who spend their lives studying this will have differing viewpoints on what the intention is here and what the meaning is. And we have to be willing to just admit that. So let's take a moment and just create a little bit of a cultural setting here to help us understand the text. Sometimes, um, not only should we be doing the hard work of understanding the text, but we need to do some of the hard work of understanding the cultural norms behind the text. So this was written to Christians in the city of Kolos, which is modern-day Turkey, um, in the first century uh, AD. So it's an entirely different culture, it's an entirely different time, and, and it requires a little bit of understanding about some of the background, which would help us understand maybe why Paul is writing what he's writing. So what I want to do is just take a moment and explain to you uh, a really important factor here in one of the cultural norms of the day had to do around those who had power and status and honor and authority. And you can probably guess it's men. But particularly, um, and it's the people with power and status and honor are husbands, are fathers, and our slave owners. And sometimes they're referred to, particularly in the idea of, of, of household codes, there's the paterfamilias is, is, the, is the word. And it's just referring to the head of the household. And the cultural norms of the day where the head of the household is always a man, and that man has ultimate authority, and there are people in the household that are less than, and some of them even not recognized as persons. So there are those with, with power, status, and honor, and authority, the paterfamilias, the husbands, the fathers, the slave owners, and then there are those who are less than or who are not even considered persons, wives, children, and slaves. And that is the cultural norm of the day. And so the cultural norm said this, wives, submit to your husbands because that is 
the right thing to do. They are the man. They are the husband. They are the ones who have power and authority. And you do well to do what they tell you. Because that is the way it is. Children, obey your fathers. Obey your parents, but obey your father because that is what you are supposed to do. Slaves, you have no status, you have no worth, you have no rights, you are property. Do what you're told because that man owns you. That's the culture norm of the day. And yet when we read this passage, and this is where it gets fun, because on the surface, it looks like Paul is endorsing misogyny and slavery. Put women down and it's okay to have slaves. It's okay for some human beings to own other human beings. And when you read this, there are people who will read this and then instantly say, you see, the Bible is a load of junk. Look at the damage that it does. And it's true. You can use the Bible to justify anything, but you can't do that with Jesus. And when you do the bad work of abusing a text like this, which the church did for a long time in telling North American slaves, it says right here in the Bible, you are owned and you should obey your masters. And it's a gross misinterpretation and abuse of Scripture. And I love what Howard Thurman says in a book of, uh, called Jesus and the Disinherited. And he says, for so long, uh, the church has had so little to offer people who have their backs up against the wall. Those who need succor and help, the church has offered very little. And it's partly because of the way that we have westernized the Bible to say what we want it to say. And a text like this forces us to ask the challenging questions. And so let's pay attention to what Paul's doing here. So if the norm of the day is the paterfamilias, the husband, the father, the slave owner, they have ultimate authority. So if you're, you submit and you obey because, that, because they have authority over you, that's why you do this. And then Paul here is doing something significant. First thing I, I, I would suggest is that we pay attention to who Paul is addressing. These letters were read to the, the community of faith. So they heard this being read. They didn't read it like we might today. And so I want you to envision husbands and wives, children, owners, and slaves all in the community of faith because this is what was happening. And they're hearing this read. And so those who, who were recognized as persons having power, status, and honor were, were husbands, were fathers, and were slave owners. And yet here Paul is writing not to them, but to those who were considered less than, who had no privileges, who had no rights or very few, and had no worth or value as persons. And there's three pairings here. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and owners. And notice the order that Paul addresses them. Rather than speaking to those who are considered most important, Paul addresses wives first, then he addresses children before fathers, and he addresses slaves before slave owners. And we can't miss the significance of Paul giving them legitimacy simply by addressing them. But then he does something different. Instead of appealing to the authority, the status, the honor, the power of the man or the paterfamilias, Paul takes all of that and he shifts all of the emphasis onto the lordship of Jesus. So six times here, Paul says, you know, 
do this because it's fitting to the Lord, or he says because it pleases the Lord, or because it shows reverence for the Lord. It's working for the Lord. It is, you've been given this from the Lord. It's the Lord you are serving, and you have a master in heaven. And six times in this passage, Paul is moving all of the cultural norms of the day and the reason why people had household codes, and he's saying that no longer applies. At least this is my understanding, and I'm suggesting this. So I, I want to be careful that I'm, I'm helping you work through this. My understanding of this is Paul is shifting the focus from the authority of the man to the lordship of Jesus. And that is pushing against the cultural norms of the day, even though it may seem similar. It is framed in an entirely new context. And if you remember um, in earlier in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes this, In this new life that we have in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or not, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. It is Christ who matters. Everything we do is based on the fact that Jesus is Lord. When we are followers of Jesus, it is now his authority that motivates the way we live. And then Paul is laying out some suggestions for how they might live because Jesus is Lord. Now, often um, we feel like we want to live good lives in, in this world. And if we are followers of Jesus, we want to live good lives so that people will pay attention to that. And it gives us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. So let's not make waves in the pond. And some are suggesting Paul is is guiding these people so that they don't make waves in the pond. And, and, I, and I would say that is one way to read this. I think another way to read it is that Paul is making waves in the pond because following the pattern of Jesus, Paul is challenging the cultural norms when they need to be challenged. And there are times when the norms of the day um, completely fit in line with what, what Jesus calls to living under his lordship. And then there are other times when those norms need to be challenged and subverted. And I think this is an example of Paul challenging and subverting the norms of the day because Jesus is Lord. So let's deal with the two words here that people have so much difficulty with. And the first is wives submit to your husbands. And then the idea also of obedience um, not particularly um, for the children, but certainly for the slaves, because it just seems like it's endorsing slavery. So let's let's deal with these a little bit, because these are this is where it really you know some people really get burned by this, frustrated with it. And I I would say this, verse eighteen says, "Wives submit to your husbands." And there have been countless hours and and thousands of pages written about what it means for wives to submit to their husbands. And so very little work has been done on verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. You know, if husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church, which is what Paul says in the Ephesians passage, which is equivalent to this, uh, it would be so radical because you ask the question, what does it mean to love like Jesus? And 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a wonderful uh, description of what love is. 
If we love like Jesus, that is a self-sacrificing kind of love. And it is a love that elevates people, that puts their needs above your own. It is a love that comes to serve the people that, that God has brought into your life rather than to hold some type of authority over them. So, and I, and I would just say this, anytime that a man wants to say, hey, listen, right here in verse 18, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Um, and a wonderful conversation Christopher and I were having this week, and he pointed out a professor that had said to him, well, let's just deal, you know, let the wives deal with that, because Paul's speaking to them there. How about if you're a man, you focus on verse 19 and what it means for, for a husband to love his wife? But the idea of submission is also just, um, we want to make it a bad word, and I'm not sure it is, because I think it, it embraces the posture of Jesus that we are willing, even if we are someone in authority, we are willing to use that authority and a power to come under somebody and serve them. So in the equivalent passage to this, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, right before he tells wives to submit to their husbands, he says, submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what else does Paul have to say about this? Well, I already noted in verse 11 that Paul says all that matters is Christ and he lives in all of us, so we are all equal in him. And he makes that very clear in verse 11 in Colossians 3. In Galatians 3.28, the apostle Paul says there's neither Jew nor, nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Christ. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul's talking about husbands and wives and their sexuality and he says don't deprive each other because the woman's body doesn't belong just to herself. She allows, she gives it to her husband to have authority over her and likewise husbands give authority to their bodies over their bodies to their wives and there's this mutuality of submitting to one another that Paul is laying the groundwork for. Um, you know, we could go on, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's a challenge to this cultural norm of the paterfamilias. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but consider others and their interests ahead of your own. Your attitude should be like Jesus. And even though he had power and status and authority, he set it aside. He emptied himself from that, and he took the nature of a slave, of a servant. Now, children and fathers... Today is Father's Day, and of course, verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents, not because your father has the authority, but because that pleases the Lord. The, the whole thing about power and status and honor is completely removed from this passage, that, that men can't claim that. Instead, the focus is on, uh, if you're going to do these things, do these things for the Lord, which changes the entire focus. And again, children are addressed before fathers. Children are legitimated. And, uh, and as having worth and value. Households then were very different than what they are now. You could do some extra work to, to learn about that. But dads, it's Father's Day. So here's a word for you. Fathers, don't aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. If you want uh, obedience from people, it seems as if Paul is saying, if you want your children to obey you, then live in such a way that you're not aggravating them, embittering them, or making it really difficult for them to obey. Instead of demanding obedience, live towards them in such a way that you invite it. 
Let's move on to this last bit, slaves and masters. And again, Paul is addressing slaves first. He is legitimating their personhood. He is speaking directly to them. And I think when, when he um, says to them, you know, work as if you're working for the Lord. There's some good things in there. And yet we're still wrestling with why is he even legitimating slavery? And I think there's a trajectory happening here where he's eroding that platform. And I think we have to pay attention to the very last verse, chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul addresses the, the slave owners. And he says, Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. So here's two words that we're wrestling with, submission and obedience for wives and for slaves. And yet Paul offers two more words here that drops the hammer on the concept of paterfamilias in the culture, that just because someone is a man, they deserve honor, power, status, and to be obeyed or to be submitted to. And Paul says, treat your slaves with justice and with equality. That word for justice is the same word that we translate in the scriptures for righteousness. And yet it can also be trust, translated as justice. And I encourage you, whenever you see the word righteousness, almost always you could, you could translate it also as justice, which often changes how we read that text. So Paul is saying, hey, if you're a slave owner, then you treat your, your, the people that you own with justice and equality. You treat them equal to yourself. And you do that because you have a master in heaven. And Paul is pointing back to the lordship of Jesus. And so here's, here's my musings. And I'm thinking out loud here a bit with you. Maybe it's possible Paul's just saying, hey, do your, do your thing so that you don't make waves and that people will see that you're good people and that they'll listen to your message about Christ. But I wonder if Paul isn't in a masterful way challenging the cultural norms of the day. And the challenge we have or the difficulty we have is that we are 2,000 years removed in an entirely different culture and it takes a little bit of extra work to understand what's happening in the text. So what do you do when you read a text like this and you just don't like it and you wish it wasn't there? Well, you could treat it with suspicion. You could throw it out. You could ignore it. You could try to use it to abuse people, which has been done for so often. And I just don't think that's what, what the, the Spirit of Christ wants us to be doing. At least that's how I, how I see this. But I think it's worth asking the question, what do we learn from this passage? And, and I would suggest that one of the things we learn from this passage is how to ask good questions of the Bible when we're reading it. And we'll get to those questions in just a moment. But I also think a passage like this invites us to ask good questions of our culture, the culture in which we live. Even though this was written to a specific people at a specific time, I think the Spirit of Christ offers us the opportunity to learn from this passage, not to create some type of universal code that was good for then and is still applicable today in every way, but to actually ask the question, when is it appropriate to look at the culture in which we're living and discern if it needs to be challenged or not because of the Lordship of Jesus?
when is the culture allowing us to live in a way that just allows people to flourish as God always intended? Then let's embrace those cultural norms. Where are the cultural norms that are putting some down at the expense of others or that are creating more damage than they are good? then let's ask the tough questions of those norms and hold them up to the Lordship of Jesus. And if they need to be subverted, then so be it. And we be willing to make all the waves necessary. So I think that's a couple things we learned from the text. Let's finish just by, by giving you some suggestions or questions you might ask when you come across a difficult passage like this. Because we started by saying, what do you do with a text like this? Let's finish just by applying some questions and see if that helps. So here's six questions I would recommend you ask. How much am I reading into the text what I want it to say? Instead of letting the text speak for itself. Another question you would ask is, what is the broader context that this is that, that this is speaking to. So we don't just pull these verses out and hold them by themselves. We, we hold them in the context of the entire letter of Colossians, which is about the Lordship of Christ. And actually, earlier in chapter 2, Paul is saying there are powers and principalities at work that, creating, that are creating the norms in our day that are not helping us. They are harming us. And we don't have to surrender to their power and authority. And I think we have to remember that in what Paul is doing here in this passage. So, what's the broader context? Third question, what other texts are there from this author or other authors that also speak to this issue? Is this the only place Paul talks about wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters? No. There are many other places that Paul speaks into this issue. And I've listed some of those passages for you. Fourth question, am I projecting a modern expectation onto an ancient text? Am I taking the norms of today and just putting them onto the text? So when Paul says, you know, when he's giving household codes, when he's talking about the family, we just assume families then were the same as they are today. So we have to be careful that we don't take modern expectations and put them onto an ancient text. Fifth question, how do others in the community of faith interpret this text. Let's learn from one another on either side of, of an issue like this to hear what they have to say. And then the last question, which I think is really important, how do Jesus' life and teaching help me interpret and apply this text to my life? So when there's a difficult passage like this, how can I read it through the lens of what I understand and find in Jesus? The way he lived and the way he taught. You know, households that are centered on Jesus are often going to challenge the norms of the day. Other times they won't. This is an example, I think, of that very thing taking place. And rather than just reading it and being angry about it, my invitation is to consider doing a little bit of the extra work, asking the questions of the text, but then asking the questions of the culture, all with the intent of recognizing Jesus as Lord and us following him as Lord. And I hope that that's just a helpful thing that's encouraging for you today. If I've left you with questions or comments that you want to make, you can email me, paul at newlifecollingwood.com, or you could text me anonymously at this number, 705-999-8693.
And sometimes maybe it's easier to interact that way. But uh, I hope that it's been helpful for you today. And I invite you to pray with me this prayer, which I've given for the week, um, a daily prayer. Lord God, we praise you for your glory. We behold your beauty and we praise you. Today, we want to live in the reality that Jesus is Lord. And may everything we do, everything we say, everything we think be done in surrender to Jesus the Christ. We submit ourselves to you, to, our, to one another today, in a manner that is fitting and pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks for following along today. We will see you next week.